This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Welcome to another show. I can't believe it's Friday and we appreciate you for hanging out with us all week. And wow, what a week to say the least. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we all need a break, a refresher, a step away from the internet, social media, and television news. Yeah. Do you have any plans? Are you going to do any uh, anything that doesn't involve social media or technology? Um, I'm not sure yet. I know I'm going to continue to be responsible because we are still oh, in the yes. middle of a pandemic. And oh, I'm not that going too. Anywhere. Yeah, I forgot. There's just too much going on. I can't even keep up with all of it. Yeah, anyway. that's one thing I will make sure to keep up with, too. Everyone yes. else should as well. Yes, agreed. Thank you for the PSA, Ryan. Uh, Coming up on the show, we've got a lot going on. We're going to be breaking down the failures of the Capitol Police with the Washington Post, plus the viral Gail King interview with that 22-year-old who was arrested for assaulting and accusing a Black teenager of stealing her phone. Oh, it's so cringy. You're not going to want to miss it, let me tell you. That is coming up in just a bit. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Uh, Today's Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that House Democrats will move to impeach President Trump if he does not imminently and willingly resign from office. And that's according to a bunch of folks like New York Times, Fox News and other reporters uh, reporting about this conference call that she had with lawmakers. Pelosi spoke with Democratic colleagues today to assess their options for removing the president from office during the final days of his presidency. And Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham said that an effort to impeach Trump would be unsuccessful in the Senate. Lindsey Graham needs to figure out what side he wants to be on. One minute he's condemning him, the next minute he's sticking up for him. In all honesty, I just wish he would stop talking. Uh, Yeah, he's definitely, what's the word? Is it wobbling? No, there's something else. I mean, we can go with that word. Word of the day. That's word of the day. Yeah. Uh, She also challenged Trump's cabinet while speaking to reporters yesterday. Attorney General Barr, do you subscribe to the presidency of Donald Trump after the act of sedition he committed yesterday. It's an ex-postmaster general, but that's that's in, when our founders put it together. Interior. The list goes on. Ask each member of the cabinet, uh, do they stand by these actions? Now let's move on to Dominion Voting Systems. They are suing former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell for $1.3 billion. Uh, The voting machine manufacturer filed a defamation lawsuit against Powell for what they say is her role in orchestrating a demonstrably false 
conspiracy theory about the voting machine company rigging the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and by the way, there is no evidence still to suggest that the Dominion voting machines were manipulated or corrupted during the U.S. elections, according to statements from federal election officials and fact checking from several news outlets. So real quick, we have breaking news. Twitter safety at Twitter safety on Twitter literally just tweeted after close review of recent tweets from the at real Donald Trump account and the context around them. We have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. His account is gone. All right. Uh, And that was actually perfect timing because Twitter, I mean, this is the bigger news, but Twitter also removed Michael Flynn's account, Sidney Powell, who we just mentioned, and other high profile supporters of him who promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory. So it definitely seems like they're taking a stand right here. And we'll have more news of other things going on, um, including news around Parler, that far right conservative app and social network. Uh, that everyone is on in the future of them in just a bit. Yeah, uh, we talked yeah. about it, actually. You, yeah. should, you all should uh, go check out our, our archive because we've actually talked about that app and how problematic it is. And I think I was reading a story earlier today that said uh, Trump was already on there. Oh. Apparently. Uh, Who knows? Okay. All right. Yeah, well, he'll need to be somewhere if he wants to broadcast, I guess. Or perhaps, what, Trump News Network coming very soon. Yikes. Okay, what's oh, happening man, in entertainment news, Ryan? All right. According to a close family friend, the Trump in-laws are fighting. It is time for your T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So Ivanka Trump was left surprised and hurt by sister-in-law Carly Kloss's social media comments amid the attack. Uh, the attack on Congress. So after Ivanka called rioters American patriots in a now-deleted tweet, Carly Kloss, who is married to Ivanka's husband's brother, Jared Kushner, took to her social media to save this. Accepting the results of a legitimate Democratic election is patriotic. Refusing to do so and inciting violence is anti-American. So her post sparked an instant rebuke from one social media user who fired back that she should, and I quote, tell your sister-in-law and brother-in-law, quote. Mm. Carly Kloss responded saying, I've tried. Now, according to this family friend, Ivanka was so shocked to see this tweet, especially because Carly and her are actually really close, but they've never spoken about politics. Now, the insider said that Carly likes to position herself publicly as an activist, yet she's never approached Ivanka on any of the issues. And my thing is, that is my issue with her because she has been honestly held um, to the fire about her relationship with the Trumps and being all in her face and how she wants to be presented as this, you know, progressive Democrat. But if you're not publicly, like, why publicly speak out if you won't even use your access to talk about the things that matter? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is true. Uh, Do we know that it's probably an awkward position to be in? Yeah, but, you know, you can't uh, expect people to not hold her accountable for that. I I mean, like, it's, it's, it's a strange position to be in, but you can't do one thing and then not do the other. That's true. Yeah, well, let us know what you think at LGT Show Everywhere. And, of course, I got more Tea Report coming up next hour. And we're talking Laverne Cox. Ooh, okay. Well, coming up next, from Trump's latest video to his tweet announcing he's skipping Biden's inauguration, the nightmare transition continues. We look at what could be next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. I'd like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. 
Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. We have just been through an intense election and emotions are high, but now tempers must be cooled and calm restored. We must get on with the business of America. That was President Trump's video posted last night to his Twitter account as he promised a peaceful transition of power. But then he also tweeted this today to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. And back with us is Natalie Jennings, the editor of The Fix at The Washington Post. Wow, what a whirlwind since the last time we spoke. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, I don't think. It wasn't. I don't think yes. it was either. It feels like feels forever like ago. It, yeah. Uh, so supposedly he was forced to make that video last night or else he was warned he would probably be kicked out of office for condoning uh, the riots. What are you hearing? Um, I haven't heard that, um, but I know he was under immense pressure starting really when the breach at the Capitol happened. Um, and it took some time for him to respond. And those those first responses on Twitter were not really considered sufficient. Uh, so, so the next round we see he, he got kicked off of Twitter for 24 hours and then pretty much as soon as he was allowed back on, he sent this um, message that, you know, people get a lot of flack for saying he changed his tone. I'm not going to say he sounded presidential in that video, but it was more sort of a vetted position. And he, for the first time, acknowledged that, um, and not more than acknowledged, said outright that there will be a transition of power, um, that he is focused on that. So um, I think he is... Uh, there's probably a very small number of people who he is talking to now. So many people have left his administration or he is on the outs with, um, you know, that, um, that it's hard to understand, but the people who are around him say he is, um, has been very temperamental and, um, you know, sort of realizing what has become of his incitement the other day. Yeah, you know, Senator Ben Sass said that according to senior White House officials, Trump was confused why others weren't as excited. Um, What does accountability look like when it comes to Trump and these rioters that we saw? It could take several forms, theoretically. Um, The one that is shaping up to be most likely is uh, getting impeached again by the House. Uh, They are drawing up articles of impeachment. I think Nancy Pelosi probably by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have issued another statement about what exactly the plan is with regard to that the Democrats impeaching Trump. The other would be the 25th Amendment, which would require Pence and a majority of his cabinet removing him from office and putting Pence in charge. Um, the other thing that a lot of people are saying is he should just resign. He should just go himself. Um, and that would be, you know, the, the least complicated way to solve this. Now, when that is the least complicated remedy, that is um, really says something. The other thing that could happen as a result of this, of course, is um, DOJ investigating the, you know, what happened at the to incite these riots. I see some reporting recently that they are not going to investigate speakers at the rally that preceded this. Um, so uh, we'll see what becomes of that. But those are sort of the, the world of possibilities. And then, of course, you want to talk about political ramifications. Does this really 
um, put the nail in his political hopes. Right. Yeah. Again, we're talking to Nellie Jennings, the editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people are saying that uh, impeachment is a way, a route to take, so he can't run again. Is that true? Sort of. Um, impeachment, just going to go back not even a year to the last time we had <laughs> to learn the ins and outs of impeachment. Part one. <laughs> impeachment is like a two-part thing. So the Senate, the House impeaches uh, a president, and then the Senate holds a trial to convict him and vote on whether to remove him from office. Uh, impeachment itself in the House, the thing that the House does, uh, would not on its own prevent him from r- running for office again. Um, the Senate could pick up what the House does, vote to convict him and remove him from office, which, you know, we're a race against time here. That seems unlikely to be able to happen while he's still in office, but they could also vote to keep him out of office, um, to not allow him to seek federal office again. Well, if Trump isn't going to the inauguration, what what does a transfer of like a peaceful transfer of power actually look like now? Because don't you know the old like I guess the current president and the new president they meet and they discuss and they have this photo mm-hmm. op. What does all of this look like now? So that's pageantry, right? It's it's important pageantry. It's important for America to say, look, we had a president and now we have a new president because people picked that and everyone accepts that. So those visuals are important, but they aren't the actual transfer of power. That mm. happens um, within you know. The, the many thousands of people working at agencies, um, the huge, huge federal government that the president is the head of. Um, and we know that it, w- it happened late, but Vice President Biden has a team at these different agencies who are working on um, on transitioning. Uh, we There's still a chance Vice President Pence will go uh, just like within the last hour. President or President-elect Biden said that he thought it was right for Trump not to go I to agree. the inauguration given the the last couple of months, but he said Vice President Pence would be welcome, and you could see that being symbolically important. But the mm-hmm. actual transition of power is not, you know, handing over some documents along with the inauguration. It's happening already, and it will formally, officially happen on um, January 20th. Wow. Yeah, Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix at The Washington Post, thank you so much again for being with us. Thank you. Coming up on the show, many are still wondering where the Capitol Police were during all of this, how they will be held accountable, and how security will be shifting moving forward. Those answers next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. U.S. Capitol Police have been scrutinized and called out after Wednesday's traumatic events with videos and photos showing them barely doing anything as rioters broke into the building. Now, the Capitol Police force, they're a city-sized police department focused on a single complex. So what went wrong? Well, political reporter at The Washington Post, David Farenthold, joins us right now who reported all about this. Thanks for being here. And thanks for having me on. Now, no lawmakers were hurt, but uh, four people died. And late Thursday, a Capitol Police officer died of injuries he suffered in the attack. So how much of a failure is this? And have they unraveled what happened? It's about the most catastrophic failure you can imagine. Now, no lawmakers were killed, as you said. So I guess that's the bright side. But the Capitol Police Department has 2,000 officers. It has an intelligence department. It has a SWAT team. It has everything in terms of manpower and armament that a city police force would have. 2,000 officers is more than like Atlanta or Cleveland. They defend one building. And in, on Wednesday, that building fell. They lost com- complete control of that building to a group of rioters who was basically uncoordinated and effectively unarmed. They didn't come with weapons, you know, guns. They came most with sticks and riot shields. So it's about as, as catastrophic a failure of policing as you can imagine. Um, and I think we're, we're just, there's, a, there's multiple layers of failure here. But the most important one, I think, was a failure to prepare. 
the, the perimeter around the Capitol, when everyone could see this attack coming, was lightly defended in a way that they ended up fighting these protesters right at their own doorstep rather than further out. Well, you know, the D.C. police chief said there was no intelligence that suggested there would be a breach of the U.S. Capitol. I also saw videos online, several videos online, where you saw uh, some of the police officers actually engaging with uh, the rioters, either, you know, telling, ushering them in or taking selfies with them. How are we seeing the Capitol Police be held accountable at this point? They are not very accountable. They are, they are accountable directly to Congress. Uh, but there's very little public oversight of what they do or how they spend their money or anything else. Um, and one of the things that Congress has promised to get to the bottom of and is most troubling about this is after that original failure where they didn't prepare for the, for the onslaught, then you saw these individual acts. And we've all seen them on video where officers seem to be opening doors, mm-hmm. gates, fences, letting people in, even taking selfies in some cases with these people. So there was this huge disparity where in some cases, uh, Capitol Police and D.C. Police were fighting hand to hand with these people. And in other places, they were just opening the doors uh, and letting them in past the metal. I don't know whether those just are decisions made by individual officers or if there was some kind of command. That's what needs to be figured out right now. Uh, yeah, it's it's really troubling uh, what we're seeing. Uh, political reporter from The Washington Post, David Farenthold, joins us right now. Uh, now, Thursday, three of Congress's top security officials, Capitol Police Chief Stephen uh, A. Sund, House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul D. Irving, and Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael C. Stinger had resigned or were set to. Uh, so what does this say about what's happening moving forward? Are they just kind of uh, going to be taken apart and then rebuilding what this is? Well, you know, because this is Congress, you know, there's always a chance they'll talk a lot and not really do very much. That's sort of their default setting. But in this case, mm-hmm. they're talking about their own safety. So I hope they'll be a little more thorough. The senators and congressmen we've talked to are com- saying what they need is a sort of a 9-11 style commission. They need to really investigate this and figure out not just what the commanders did wrong, but what individual officers did wrong. You know, this sort of cascade of failures, who is responsible for it? And do they need to fire people, more people? Do they need to fire officers? Do they need to change the way the department works? Because it failed at basically every level. Yeah, let's break this down because I feel like I was uh, reading things and hearing things about, um, obviously because D.C. is not a state, it's that's one of the main reasons why it took so long for the National Guard to come in. How much did that actually play into that? I think it did take a while for the National Guard to get there. But uh, to me, the National Guard, you know, was never going to be a quick reaction force. They're, you know, they're not not the police. They're not meant to be the police. The crazy thing was that the D.C. police, which are a pretty competent, large force, and who had lots of experience fighting these people from previous Trump protests, was not there in in big numbers. And they, they, Capitol Police didn't ask for reinforcements from the D.C. police until the, you know, the the doors had basically been breached uh, or were almost about to be breached. So there were, there's a lot of cops in D.C., you know, put aside the National Guard, there's a lot of police officers in in Washington, D.C., and the Capitol Police didn't seem to ask for them until it was basically too late. What we've been told is that the D.C. police, who don't normally patrol the Capitol, they were the ones who created order. They show up on scene and find basically nobody knows what's going on, nobody's in charge, and a D.C. police inspector, sort of a high-ranking D.C. police officer, is like, okay, I'm in charge now. Here's the plan. Here's how we're going to get them out. So it's pretty rogue. Okay, so what does uh, security look like in the future then and for something like the inauguration? Well, the immediate impact was that they put up huge fences around the Capitol and lots of police. I mean, there's, there's National Guardsmen, I think, sleeping in their cars in Senate parking lots now. There's so many people around the Capitol. Basically, it looks like now it should have looked like on Wednesday. And I think for the inauguration, you will see a lot of security. Some of these people involved in the storming of the Capitol have now said they're going to come back for the inauguration. 
So I think you will see a huge amount of security in the city. Uh, in the inaugurations, parts of it happens at the Capitol, but it's, it's all over the city. And so there's other agencies involved. I, I hope and I think that you will see a, a much more prepared police set of police forces on Inauguration Day. Okay, that was Washington Post political reporter David Farenthold. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now coming up, Gail King's wild interview with that 22-year-old who was arrested for attacking a black teenager and falsely accusing him of stealing her phone. We're going to be playing some of that and talking about what went down. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. So Gail King did this interview with 22-year-old Mia Ponsetto. She's the young woman who was arrested after allegedly attacking a black teenager. She falsely accused of taking her phone. Now, this interview is so ridiculous on so many levels. I guess we're going to play one part of it, but we could have played so many and reacted. But here's a little bit. I admit, yes, I could have approached the situation differently or maybe not yelled at him like that and made him feel, you know, maybe some sort of inferior way, making him feel as if I was like hurting his feelings because that's not my intention. I I consider myself to be super sweet. I really never ever meant for it to like hurt him or his father. Okay. So (laughs) Ryan, where do we even begin? I mean, this story, I've known about this story for several um, weeks at this point. I'm actually mm-hmm. several months because it ha- I think it happened towards the end of last year. And so this is something that's been on my radar already. It was something that was gaining a lot of steam on Instagram. And yeah, I think it's uh, shocking that uh, what we saw, unfortunately, and if you don't know anything really about this story, um, this 14-year-old teenager is now seeking trauma therapy after being, you know, <laughs> accused of stealing his uh, this girl's phone. And the kick out of this was that the, the hotel didn't have the phone. The Uber driver had, her Uber driver had the phone and actually returned it to her and she didn't apologize. And so what we saw here with Gail King was just another act of violence and racism against one, I can't believe my queen, Gail King, the fact that her, this interview just shows her patience, her, demu- oh, her yes. demure. And it's honestly an interview masterclass on how to handle ridiculous people like this, especially someone who doesn't even understand their actions and how severe they are, because she still thinks being 22 is her being a child. And that kind of justifies what she did, but it doesn't. And her not understanding what uh, racism and the bias as a and I don't know what her background is, but as a, you know, white leaning woman is in this case. And the fact that yes, right. Presenting um, woman. But like, yeah. And and the crazy thing is her lawyer is sitting next to her the entire time. Was she advised on how to answer any of these questions? Does she she have any sort of team on how to answer these? Because it sounds like she was not following any sort of guidance. Yeah, so her lawyer actually, um, her name is Sharon H. Gatton. Um, She actually spoke to TMZ uh, to talk about how she had an in-person meeting with uh, Maya and she could tell that she was emotionally and mentally fragile and she was forced to cancel national interviews due to her concern of her well-being and lack of understanding of the process. Uh, She said, and I quote, I'm here to guide her as legal counsel, but if she is unwilling willing to take my advice, there is not much more I can do because TMZ actually ran up on Maya at a McDonald's outside in Ventura and uh, Maya did not care. She was like so 
actually very um, aggressive about her response and uh, slammed the door on TMZ as they were asking if she regretted anything. So yeah, this girl is uh, completely off the rails and is not listening to anyone around her. Yeah, we, we see the next generation, like we are encouraged by the next generation and how they can really create change. I think she's just like the the little part of the, the next generation sh that shows, uh, unfortunately, a lot of privilege and a non-understanding about how this all works. In any and, generation, there'll be those people, yeah. you know? And of course, I think of course. She's the bad apple, and I think prison will give her a way to figure that out. I can't, I can't, but let's move on. We got what's trending this hour. The LGBTQ task force joins us, so that's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, the LGBTQ task force joins us to discuss their latest statement that they released calling for the immediate removal of President Trump. Plus, what does reform look like for those with felony records? We have a really great conversation with someone coming up on the show, so definitely hang out with us uh, to listen to that this hour. Uh, but first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. President-elect Joe Biden spoke out about the Republican Party today as their disparate responses on what happened Wednesday continues to divide the party. Pick up on something that you just said about President Trump actively encouraging the insurrection at the Capitol. Given that, given the perceived threat that he poses, my question to you is not so much about the role that Congress should play in impeachment, but rather, should President Trump, in your estimation, remain in office? I didn't think, look, I've been saying for now well over a year, he is not fit to serve. He is not fit to serve. He's one of the most incompetent presidents in the history of the United States of America. And so the idea that I think he shouldn't be out of office yesterday is not the issue. And if you think uh, 2021 hasn't been crazy enough so far. And this week, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un threatened to expand his nuclear arsenal and develop more sophisticated atomic weapon systems. Kim's comments made today during a key ruling party meeting was seen as an effort to apply pressure on the incoming government of President-elect Joe Biden, who, of course, as we know, is taking office later this month. Okay there. Uh, let's move on to Perler. You know, the far right conservative social network app. Well, BuzzFeed News is reporting that Apple has given Parler 24 hours to put a moderation platform into place or they're going to be expelled from their app store. Apple wrote to Parler executives telling them it had received complaints about, quote, objectionable content, accusations that the Parler app was used to plan, coordinate and facilitate the illegal activities in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021, that led, among other things, to loss of life, numerous injuries and the destruction of property. The app also appears to continue to be used to plan and facilitate further illegal and dangerous activities. Um, and this is pretty scary. Uh, as evidence of that, they have screenshots of Parler posts calling for Vice President Mike Pence to face a firing squad and encouraging American patriots to return to the Capitol on January 19th, quote, carrying our weapons. Now, this is a uh, crazy uh, unfortunately, not surprising. But uh, the question is, Ryan, if they take down something like Parler, are they going to just find another space to do this? Yeah, I mean, that's what the dark web is for. Uh, I mean, there is a responsibility of these platforms to do something. But uh, hopefully there's something at a higher level being done so that these communities face repercussions and they can't do what they're going to do. 
Uh, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Something oh. lighter, I hope. Not really. Uh, a controversial documentary about sex work will move forward without Laverne Cox's creative insights. This is your T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So the Orange is New Black star and trans rights advocate announced Thursday that she would step down as executive producer of Sarah Jones's Sell by Date because she was not, and I quote, not in an emotional place to deal with the outrage, end quote, sparked by her involvement. Now, her decision came days after she was named alongside Rashida Jones and Meryl Streep as an executive executive producer of the film, which Deadline said will examine themes of criminal justice, race, sexism, and poverty as experienced by sex workers. But here's the kicker. People on social critiqued her decision to even be a part of it in the first place because the film never actually consulted sex workers. So was this the right decision? How do you have a documentary about sex workers and not consulting? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean... And then one, I think someone like Laverne Cox should probably do her research before possibly, you know, being part of something like this. But a lot of times, I guess you don't know and you don't know how you get involved in these types of projects. Right. So, yeah, she made the right decision, I think, at this point. I agree. I agree. And uh, she said it was this was a decision based on her mental health. And so any Mm. decision based on your mental health is a good decision. And that is your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. Okay. well, next up on the show, the LGBTQ task force joins us to discuss the actions they hope can be taken to remove President Trump from office. We'll be back in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The National LGBTQ Task Force released a statement calling for the immediate removal of Donald J. Trump from the office of the presidency. Uh, This is what the statement included, that he has been and continues to be and will remain a threat to democracy, the U.S. Constitution and human life. Every day he remains in office while his attempted coup has failed. He and his supporters are a threat to democracy and will be as long as he is in power. And joining us right now is Kathy Renna, the communications director from the LGBTQ Task Force. Thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here to talk to you about this. So first, before we go into this statement, uh, to create some context, what does the LGBTQ Task Force consist of? What do you do? So the National LGBTQ Task Force is uh, a nearly 50-year-old advocacy organization that fights for equity for LGBTQ plus people. Um, We are often seen as the progressive voice in the queer community and the queer voice in the progressive community. So we do everything from education to lobbying to our annual Creating Change conference. Um, It's it's an amazing organization. I just very recently took this position, but I've been working with them for decades. One thing I loved about y'all, the National LGBTQ Task Force statement that you all released saying, while his attempted coup has failed, he and his supporters are a threat to democracy and will be as long as he is in power. And I think about, you know, Joe Biden coming in and I feel like every which way you look in every direction, there are always attacks when it comes to our community. How does Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in this new administration show up for queer folks at a time like this? I think that's that is the most important question we can be asking if we can get through the next two weeks, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I I think the community has a tremendous amount of hope. You know, we obviously worked with the Biden administration when it was the Obama Biden administration. Um, we're seeing appointments, we're seeing um, efforts, and uh, very obvious statements about how we are we're part of the. We're part of the picture, we're part of the team, we're at the table, we have a voice, we're included. 
Um, I think that it's, you know, that's been clear since actually since the campaign and, and all of the Democratic candidates. But I, I know that, you know, we're also facing obviously huge threat to our democracy in general, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. But the LGBTQ community has a lot to offer, has a lot to contribute. And we also have a lot of progress to make. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We need to, you know, from day one, start looking at the issues as they affect our community, whether it's health disparities related to the COVID pandemic, whether it's finally passing the Equality Act so that we have non-discrimination protections that we currently do not enjoy on a federal level. Uh, Kathy Renna again joins us, the communications director from the LGBTQ task force. Uh, why was it important to release this statement? What do you hope comes from it right now? Well, I think it's very, very important that our community understand that they need to take a stand. In fact, today, a joint statement that was co-signed by the task force, by GLAAD, by the Human Rights Campaign, the Equality Federation, which is the statewide LGBTQ equality groups, um, put out a very, very similar call. Um, but I, I, th I think it was interesting that afternoon, you know, one of the things about the task force is it is very much a family. And almost immediately we decided to set up an open Zoom for all the staff to sort of be together. You know, we can't obviously be together in person. We can't come into a conference room and gather you know, and watch which ha what's unfolding in television. A lot of our staff are, are based in the DC area. So, you know, the immediate concern was, was how are we all doing? You know, this was, it was really a rather traumatic afternoon for us. Um, and, and the idea that we needed to immediately put something out there to put the community um, on notice and, and let the public know that we do see this as a, and see Donald Trump as a threat to democracy, as we have, frankly, for the last four years, um, was incredibly important. It's our, it's our mission. Our mission is equality for everyone. Yeah, do you think, because I think one of the major dangers that we see is silence, right? And how you can be very complicit if you're silent. Um, do you think after what took place a couple days ago that people will feel more encouraged to speak out and speak up, um, especially when calling out, you know, what we need to call out and, and getting actual change, tangible change happening? I think not just within the LGBTQ community, but of course, all the other communities that we are all part of, right? We all bring multiple identities to the table as queer people. Um, we're ready, we're ready to do more. I mean, I think we saw that from really, honestly, the beginning of this year, when we saw the incredible response to the horrific murders of George Floyd, uh, Tony McCabe and, and, and others, and uh, really a lifting up of the epidemic of violence against, in particular, uh, trans women of color. You know, that's an issue that our community has not uh, recognized or, or addressed as much as, uh, as, we, as we could. And so I think people are incredibly energized. It's, it's why, I, as I was saying uh, before we started talking, I'm super excited about our Creating Change Conference coming up. We're gonna have thousands of queer activists come together to talk about uh, not just, you know, what has happened for the last four years, but what will happen in the next four years and beyond. You know, what is the work that we need to do to rebuild and restore the democracy that has been so damaged under the Trump administration? And how do we move forward in all the different areas that we care about, uh, whether it's prison reform, whether it's police reform, whether it's economic justice, racial justice, or queer equality. And so 
uh, I think people are are really ready to do even more than they already have been. All right. Well, Kathy Renna, uh, the communications director from the LGBTQ Task Force, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And for more info and to get involved, go to creatingchange.org. Now coming up on the show, how thousands of American laws keep people imprisoned long after they're released. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Voting rights of returning citizens, those previously incarcerated, was in the spotlight last year as a law in Florida, Amendment 4, that looked to give them back the right to vote, was challenged during the presidential election. But it brings up an even bigger issue, as this political article by Dr. Ruben Jonathan Miller says, long after they finish probation or parole, people with felony records are effectively imprisoned, but in their home communities. And Dr. Miller joins us right now on the show. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really glad, really glad to, 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 to join you. So why was this a profile piece you wanted to dive deeper into as we move into 2021? We saw the repercussions of all of this definitely during the presidential race last year. No, for sure. I feel like we tend to pay attention to bright and shiny objects. So for example, um, whatever, whatever the, the big thing is that gets our attention for the moment, that's, that's, what, that's what we're attending to. So, so the number of people in jails or prisons, you know, we're the world's leading jailer, 2.3 million people for sure. But we know that twice that number of people are on probation or parole. But what we don't tend to talk uh, enough about, at least in, 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 from, from, from my perspective, is that something like 19.6 million Americans have a felony record. And the kinds of, of, of experiences that they have in community, the kinds of constraints, the legal exclusions that they face in housing, in employment, et cetera, is largely undiscussed. And so what I wanted to do was draw attention to the real lives and experiences of people uh, who we've incarcerated, who have, quote, paid their debt to society, but who are never allowed to actually pay that debt, uh, <laughs> you know, if the debt is ever articulated. And so, and so I wanted to bring attention uh, uh, to their lives and their experiences and for us to think carefully about what it means to do uh, reform uh, and what it means to live under these conditions. Yeah, I would really love for you to break down because in your piece, it talks a little bit about it. But for any of our listeners who obviously haven't read your piece or, or don't know much about this, could you break down what Amendment 4 is? Sure, sure. So Amendment 4 was a constitutional uh, amendment to Florida's, uh, was an amendment to Florida's constitution that allowed uh, people who have been convicted of felony offenses and who were subject to a lifetime ban uh, the, right, the right to vote. It passed in 2018 in, in, in Florida, and they amended their constitution. And this is a very important thing. Uh, but what Amendment 4 left out and what most criminal justice reform leaves out are people who are convicted of sex offenses, by and large, and people who are convicted of particular kinds of violent offenses, you know, murder, and, and other kinds of, of other forms of violence. And so that, that was Amendment. Um, but then also, that, and just, we don't need to go too much into this, but it was challenged because they said, you need to pay all of everything in order to vote. So like, you're talking about people that barely have anything because they've been let, left out, right? Just to try to survive. And then you have to pay to be able to vote. So where's the rights there? That's right. This, this, this is a really important point and, and hopefully it'll be picked up in the edits. But this is, yeah. but this is, this is, this is, this is a really important point. So, so what Amendment 4 allowed for was something like 1.4 million people access to the franchise. And then uh, uh, just a few months before the election, before the, the, the national election, uh, there was an appellate court decision that said you had to pay all your legal fines and fees. And so this, this amounts to thousands of dollars that people have paid 
for being on supervision, for having an ankle monitor, for paying for weekly drug tests. So for example, you might be on probation or parole. You might be, so you have to check in with the probation or parole officer. You have to pee in a cup. Uh, you have to pay $10 every time you do that, by the way. And so these things, these things build up, they stack up. And so, and so, and so what the appellate court decision did was effectively revoke uh, the voting rights for something like 750,000 of that 1.4 million people who were, who were. Yeah. So you see what that does. And, and they did a lot of work to try to get those people the right to vote. But um, again, we're talking to Dr. Ruben Jonathan Miller, who wrote this great piece about in Politico about how those who were previously incarcerated still don't have any freedom. Um, you mentioned how nationwide 45,000 collateral consequences regulate the lives of people with criminal records. Can you explain what collateral consequences means? Sure. Collateral consequences are the laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that uh, states employ through entries in their legal code uh, that bar people with criminal records from full access to, for example, the employment labor, housing, and housing markets from political and civic participation. And so an example of a collateral consequence is, is, is something like almost every public housing authority in every American city has a ban of some sort on people with felony records from being able to access public housing. Another example might be uh, in some cities, uh, in some states, uh, a woman who's convicted of a drug offense uh, can't readily access public welfare benefits. So she, so, so for example, in California, until about five or six years ago, um, women weren't allowed access to, uh, women convicted of drug offenses weren't, access, weren't allowed access to, to food stamps. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so, so these are examples of collateral consequences. They're called collateral consequences because they're not a part of the formal sentence. Right. These are additional laws and policies on top of the, the, the prison sentence uh, for people with criminal records. So can we change the way we look at past felons? And when is a debt to society paid? More with Dr. Ruben, Jonathan Miller, right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with Dr. Ruben, Jonathan Miller, talking about how we can create new laws for those who are previously incarcerated and now free. But are they? Yeah, and I think what's interesting is, and I would love to know what states are doing it right, you know? What what can state and local governments do to make sure people are able to fully reintegrate back into society? And what are those states who are actually doing the right thing right now? Well, we can look at Michigan, which just passed the, the what, what's called the Clean Slate Act, which was a series of laws that expunged uh, many uh, kinds of criminal records. Um, the problem with the interventions that happen at the policy, at the, at the state, at the level of state policy is that uh, policymakers are afraid of crimes of violence and sex offenses. So in almost every case, in almost every state, even when they're wonderful reforms like we see in a state like Michigan, which has expanded the kinds of crimes that can be expunged, meaning that can be hidden, sealed, erased, uh, uh, so that employers don't see them, so that landlords don't see them, there's always a carve out for people who committed violent crimes. The problem with that is over half of all prisoners are in prison for a crime of violence. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, so on the one hand, a state like Michigan is doing it very well. 
Uh, on the other hand, what we've done is we've created a pariah class. This is right. especially the case for people on the sex offense registry. Well, that's the thing, Ruben. And I feel like a lot of people who are probably listening to this conversation and even I'm from the South. And so uh, people in the South, they have very just, you know, narrow mindsets. And I feel mm. like one of the things that popped up to me, well, if they didn't commit the crime, would they be into the situation? What would you say to people that are thinking that right now listening to this? Well, I think a couple things. On, 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 you know, one thing is, do we hold people accountable for things that they've done 35 years ago? And uh, what's the point of it all? So, so for what reason are we punishing people? Do we punish them for the sake of public safety? If that's the case, not allowing someone to have a house or a place to work or a place to stay decreases public safety by increasing the likelihood that people involve themselves in crime. Are we doing it to feel better about ourselves? Then we just need to admit that. We just need to say we're the kinds of people who want to who want to hurt people who hurt us. We just need to say that, and and then and then we're, we're it's we're, that we're, simple, we're, right? It's, exactly. it's very. It, it brings up a lot of philosophical and ethical questions here, and like you brought that up, and like when is a debt to society paid, really? Uh, but I think even further, if we you know go deeper um, at the systemic issues around this, like, and you bring up the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendments, how does that play into this, and us looking towards? Um, you know, a solution here. My intervention has, has been to get us to think at the level of citizenship. Yeah. 13th and 14th Amendment, well, did two things. One, it abolished slavery, except for when people committed a crime because of what's called a due process clause. And it, and it established citizenship rights, uh, except for when someone commits a crime because of the due process clause. Okay, so what that does, is it allows us to mistreat uh, people who have committed crimes, no matter what the crime is. So, so, so you could have had a marijuana conviction. You could have murdered somebody. Uh, uh, you could have, you could have, you could have uh, uh, been convicted of public urination. It doesn't matter. All of none of you can rent public housing. Yeah. So, 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 so what we have to do is we have to intervene at the level of citizenship. So now the question is, what kinds of laws and policies would I write if the point of this wasn't to protect me from harm? But if the point of this was to create a society in which people can live together fully, healthy, happily, I think we have to start thinking about protecting uh, people with criminal records as a vulnerable class, uh, like we do for uh, people from racial category, racial groups, from gender, different gender uh, expressions of, of, of gender, you know, et cetera. Like we think about the groups as a protected class and that way uh, when they're discriminated against because of these things, they have the right to push back against that level of discrimination. Oh my God. Okay. Well, this, I just got chills. There's a lot here to unpack. We hope to have you back on the show. That so was, good. Uh, Dr. Ruben Jonathan Miller, an assistant professor at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration. Also, he's the author of the forthcoming Halfway Home Race Punishment and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, coming up on the show, why 13 million people might not have received their stimulus checks. Could that be you? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, what happens to the Capitol Police now and how they will prepare for the inauguration? Uh, plus some inspiring news because we need it today with our Yaz Queen of the Day. So stick around for that, please. Uh, but first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. 
Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, he's of course a Republican, uh, says he's open to impeaching President Donald Trump after he incited a mob that broke into the U.S. Capitol. He was flagrantly uh, disregarding his oath of office. So that that's not in debate. The House, if they come together and have a process, I will definitely consider whatever articles they might move. What he did was wicked. Now, there are a few Republicans, as we know, who are aligning with Sass, while others like Ted Cruz continue to go down that rabbit hole. Let's move on to stimulus payments. Millions of Americans may have to wait a little longer to receive their stimulus payment from the federal government because of, guess what, a glitch in the distribution that is expected, though, to be fixed soon. The payment's worth up to $600, as we know, per taxpayer, and $600 for each of uh, their dependents were part of the latest COVID relief package signed into law at the end of December. The IRS says up to 100 million have already been completed. But according to TurboTax spokesperson Ashley McMahon, millions of payments were sent to the wrong accounts and some may not have received their stimulus payment. What's that amount? Roughly 13 million people may have been affected, according to one insider. The IRS, though, said today they're taking immediate steps to redirect stimulus payments to the correct account for those impacted. So don't you worry about that. Now, President Trump, um, his son, Donald Trump Jr., and Rudy Giuliani may all be investigated and charged for their potential roles in inciting that violent mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. And D.C.'s top prosecutor hinted that today in an interview with Good Morning America, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, whose office is investigating dozens of rioters, had this to say. Well, just as the Internet uh, has been a place of hate and hurling uh, violent epithets, the internet now can be utilized to identify the very people who violated the capital of the United States. I want to know that more people died at the capital of the United States than in Benghazi. I can tell you that just last night, I got a call from a lawyer in town who indicated he was representing a client who was in California, who was at the capital and now wants to turn herself in. These calls will continue. I'm asking anyone with information about any members of the mob that sought to essentially overturn a democratic election and violate the Capitol to call the Office of Attorney General, the Metropolitan Police Department, and the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. We will enforce the law. Okay, and uh, that does it for what's trending this hour. But what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So, did this 1996 episode of The Simpsons predict the Capitol Hill attack? This is Ooh. your T report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So, I mean, I don't know if they have hired a, a psychic at this point, but The Simpsons is once more being credited with predicting history decades before it happened. Um, Fans of the 31-year-old animated TV series were quick to credit two episodes of the show with anticipating the angry mob of President Donald Trump, supporters who vandalized an attempted insurrection at the Capitol on Wednesday. Um, One fan tweeted this, Simpson predicted it many years ago, along with a clip from the 1996 episode titled The Day the Violent Died. In that episode, it shows a change to the Constitution where police officers can beat the, quote, liberal freaks, unquote. 
Um, more recently, last year's annual Treehouse of Horror Halloween episode is also being credited with predicting the trail of destruction left by the pro-Trump thugs uh, this week. So, yeah, this is so weird. I'm not sure if, like I said, I don't really get how they do it. I don't know if this is just comedy at this point, that it's mimicking real life. But, yeah, it's happening, and The Simpsons is right just again. Is this just a coincidence or are they psychic? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? They're talented and rich, so good on them. Uh, Coming up on the show, Lizzie Olson, who is a Senate counsel, shares her harrowing experience being in the Capitol when the riot happened. Her story next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Now, The Morning Beat, that's our morning show here on Channel Q, spoke to Lizzie Olson earlier today. She is a Senate counsel who was working at the Capitol on Wednesday. They discussed the staffing of the Capitol Police, what was normal versus abnormal about that day, and if she feels safe going back. Right. So um, most of us are remote working um, right now, which honestly, due to COVID, I kind of say is a blessing because I worry if we were full staffed, how many more people would have gotten injured. Mm. Um but we are remote working, but I needed to go into the office. So I had actually completely forgotten about the march. Um, I was driving into work like a normal day, probably around 11-ish. And then I started getting diverted and there were road closures everywhere and blockades. And in D.C., that's pretty normal. Um, but this was a lot of uh, road closures. So by the time I got a little bit closer to the National Monument, I saw just the Trump flags everywhere. And I said, oh, my gosh, I completely forgot my mistake. And then I kind of, that's not that um, out of the norm, but there were trucks and cars parked illegally everywhere, like all over the national park grounds, everywhere. And I thought to myself, well, this clearly isn't a group of people that kind of are here to kind of um, respect federal grounds. And I I did note that in my head, but I moved on. Um, By the time I got diverted into the office, I finally parked my car. And there's you know, um, members of the demonstration everywhere. And I parked my car, which is in a secure lot, and I'm walking to my Senate building, which all of our House um, office buildings and Senate buildings are all connected underground to the United States Capitol building. So I need to, like, understand, explain that to people. Once they were in the Capitol, they technically could have gotten to any office building on the Hill. Um, So once I had parked my car. I walked up to my secure door and there's one police officer outside and there's demonstrators everywhere. And I said to him, you know, we're not letting in visitors today, are we? And he said, absolutely not. And I see this group of demonstrators or protesters, whatever you want to call them, about probably 50 feet from my front door. Mm -hmm. And they have speakers reverberating the president's speech. And at this point, they're chanting, excuse my language, they're chanting the word and they're getting really riled up. And that's why I asked the man, because my immediate thought is they're probably going to try and come into the Capitol building and say hi to these representatives and start, you know, a kind of a ruckus. Um, But never my wildest dreams did I think they're going to the Capitol building. I just thought they'd try and get to the offices because there's only about four police at every door at our office buildings. So I go into my office normal um i i'm doing my work and one of my girlfriends texts me and asks me if i want to go to lunch at 12 30 12 45 it's about 12 almost 30 at this point and things are starting to get a little hairy but i'm not concerned for my security in the building i was more concerned about driving across dc 
my security driving across DC. So once I said yes, I would love to go to lunch with her. Thank God. I um I started walking to my car, and the crowds have like tripled in size, and they're everywhere. And I get in my car, and I head to lunch with her, and it's impossible. Like there's people everywhere. I'm driving, but again, I'm not thinking the Capitol building is in danger at all. I'm thinking they're going to try and get in the Senate offices. Thank God there's not a lot of people there. You know, those police will stop them. It'll just be one or two people. Wow. Well, uh, she definitely brought up a lot of relevant points here, and I'm happy that she was safe that day. But yeah, I can't imagine having been there and the trauma a lot of people feel. And like to, to go back to work even that night is still unbelievable to me. Speaking of which, though, many are still wondering where the Capitol Police were during all of this, how they will be held accountable, and how security will be shifting moving forward. We have those answers with The Washington Post next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes Queen. So in school with education right now, it's difficult. It's difficult for a lot of teachers. And one principal is stepping up for her students by taking on the role of school bus driver during the pandemic. We talked about many hats. Well, this is uh, one of them. Since there's been a shortage of bus drivers, Janet Throgmorton, who's the principal of Fancy Farm Elementary, I want to go there, Fancy Farm, in (laughs) Western Kentucky, uh, she's worn multiple hats for the Graves County School District, including taking kids home from school. This is what she had to say to Good Morning America. She had the first couple of times I drove, it was really comical because I'm on the bus as the bell rings, as the kids are dismissed. She gets to see everything, right? They're going to be good on that bus, hopefully. The kids are like, she added, why are you driving the bus? Do you know how to drive the bus? I say, yes, I got my license to do it. She said that because of COVID-19, there's been a shortage um, She's been short two drivers in her school. They're fighting the coronavirus. And she says it's been very difficult for bus drivers, aides, cafeteria workers. It affects every aspect of what we do. Although COVID hasn't affected kids very much, she still considers schools a germ area. We don't blame them. Uh, So we give her and all educators right now a big Yaz Queen of the day. Oh, yes, Queen. And honestly, Fancy Farm probably isn't as fancy as you think it is, Shira. (laughs) Who knows? Let a girl dream. Uh, Now, wrestler Mr. Grimm, known as the hitman for hire, announced on New Year's Day that he is pansexual. This is what he had to say. For years, I've struggled with my identity, too worried about how others would feel or think about me. Uh, He was born as Chris Davis, and he tweeted this. I finally gained the courage to openly express that I'm pansexual. He thanked Nyla Rose, a trans woman and champion wrestler, for influencing him to come out. He said, thank you for being my inspiration, supportive, and holding my hand throughout this process. So congrats to Mr. Grimm. Come on, pansexual. Welcome to the fam. I was going to say, he doesn't seem so grim anymore. (laughs) All right. That does it for our Yes Queen (laughs) of the Day in our show. Yes, Queen. You know, we need a little bit of something to make us feel good right now. And actually, um, by the way, because, you know, everyone's posting about Trump's Twitter account being... Um, you know, he's not he's blocked. He's not on anymore. Basically, we all have more followers than President Trump now. How about that? OK, <laughs> we'll be back on Monday, same time, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live here on Channel Q. Coming up on Monday's show, we're going to be talking about how queer teachers are helping students feel safe right now, plus how to cope when the news is 
traumatizing. We are here to help you. Uh, that's next week. And also, again, we have a podcast. So please support us on our podcast. Join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Have a great weekend. See you Monday. Bye, y'all.